I want to thank our sponsor, Planet Ford. Planet Ford has always been a proud supporter of law enforcement in the community, providing customer service and fleet management, sales and service. If you're looking for that personal quality service, contact Planet Ford in spring or online at planetford.com. You're listening to Crime Scene Today, where we meet with subject matter experts to discuss current and future issues facing law enforcement, forensics, and crime scene investigations. Today, we're discussing fingerprint processing. While attending the International Association for Identification Conference in Reno, Nevada, I went to a presentation called Incriminated by Photographs. The topic was identifying fingers and hands captured in evidentiary photos. The presenter is Karen Oswald, a fingerprint expert that works for the Suffolk County Police Department in New York. I had an opportunity to sit down with Karen. She explained how this presentation came about. After my interview with Karen, I'll be talking to co-host and fingerprint expert Leslie McCauley about how smaller agencies with limited budgets can increase the fingerprint processing at their department. Now on to the interview with Karen. Hi, Dan. Thanks for having me. My name is Karen Oswald. I'm a senior evidence specialist with the Suffolk County Police Department Identification Section. I've worked for them for almost 14 years uh, as a latent print examiner. We also process major crime scenes, homicides, bank robberies, and police-involved shootings for fingerprint evidence. Um, I also spent one year working with the United States Army Criminal Investigation Laboratory as a contractor as a um, forensic scientist, latent print examiner in one of their expeditionary labs in Afghanistan. So your presentation today, so uh, just give us briefly sort of what, what's, uh, what's the new presentation, what's the new thing that you're doing with fingerprints? So my presentation today was on identifying hands or palms that appear in evidentiary photographs, which are different from typically what I do as a latent print examiner, which as you said would be to dust an item or process an item with chemicals and develop a print that we couldn't see before. In this situation, a detective would recover a photograph of whatever it is that he's investigating, and in that photograph would possibly be somebody holding an object. And because the resolution on camera phones is so good now, um, I've run into a couple situations where the friction ridge detail on the suspect's hands is identifiable just by looking at the picture. So how did this first get brought to your attention, that uh, first case or uh, that you, uh, I guess, thought to do this? The first case was uh, from our computer crimes detectives. They were investigating a man who was suspected of having possession of child pornography. And when they did a forensic dump of his computer and his cell phone, they came across seven images that stuck out as pictures that had been taken as opposed to downloaded. So they were looking at those pictures and they noticed that along with the act that was going on, his hands were visible. And they had the wherewithal to notice that and come up to the ID section and say, hey, is there enough detail here that you guys can actually do something with this? Now, have you done something like this before they brought this to you? That was the first time. And so have you, have you heard of people doing this? Is this something sort of new? It was new to me, and I immediately wanted to do it, um, but wasn't sure how to go about it. So I did some research and I found that a couple other agencies had already done it. There were some investigators in Sarasota, Florida and Canada. And I think there was one other place that's slipping my mind right now, but I called the 
investigators down in Sarasota and just talked with them about their case. And they reassured me that their process in identifying the hands was not all that different from identifying latent prints that are developed off of evidence. And this is uh, very important, as you brought up, uh, the first case you had was a child crime. And, you know, I've, I've worked over uh, child crimes for a long time and, and also with our ICAC, which is Internet Crimes Against Children. And in those cases, uh, these predators will uh, seek these children. They'll send them photos of themselves. They'll send them photos of their body parts and, and uh, make suggestive things. But uh, in doing so, uh, obviously, there's a possibility of us actually getting identification, which is very hard to do in internet crimes. I mean, we can get IP addresses, we can get a general location, but actually knowing who's behind that keyboard, knowing who's actually sent this photo uh, is something that's always uh, very challenging in investigations to do. So what were the next steps? What were steps that you took in, in identifying this? So the next steps were to take those seven photo images and analyze them to see which of the images, if any, contained enough friction ridge detail in the hands or the fingers um, that I could actually make a comparison. And out of those seven, only two pictures had identifiable friction ridge skin. So I took those two photographs and I analyzed the three different areas of friction ridge skin within them. Um, and then because these had come off of a cell phone, they already knew who the cell phone belonged to, they gave me the name of their suspect who happened to have a previous arrest from 1987. And I pulled his arrest card from 1987 and made a comparison with one of the areas of friction ridge skin. And I was able to identify his left index finger from one of the photographs. The other photograph had um, the suitable detail was on the second and third joint, so I needed major case prints before I could complete that comparison. So explain, uh, for those that don't know, what's a major case print versus our normal prints that we take? The normal prints that we take when somebody's under arrest are called 10 prints, which is rolling each of the first joints of each of your 10 fingers and then taking flat impressions of each of your 10 fingers. Uh, this probably also includes taking a flat palm print. Major case prints involves taking every bit of friction ridge skin on your entire hand. Um, your whole hand is covered with this special fric friction ridge skin. It's not just your fingerprints. So major case prints would be the normal 10 fingers that you roll, the normal 10 flats, the normal flat palms, but it also includes the sides of each finger, the joints of each finger, the tips of each finger, and the sides of each of your palms, making sure that you collect all the friction ridge detail on that person's hands. So that's what you need in one of the photos that, uh, in this case. So uh, I know in your presentation you spoke that uh, there's uh, a different way in looking at, I guess, and, and analyzing these prints versus the normal prints, if you could explain that. It's not too different, but you have to remember um, or take into consideration just a few different things, which a big uh, difference is the distortion. When you have a latent print, that's a print that's left behind in sweats and oils. They're very fragile. They're influenced by a lot of factors. Some of those factors are the substrate, which is the item that you're actually handling. Um, that can cause your finger impression to not look as clear when it's left behind. Um, the other would be the matrix, which is what you're actually leaving behind on that object. Are, your prints, sweat prints, are they oil prints? Do you have 
um, ink or blood or paint on your hands? Are you leaving a print in something like that? And the other one would be deposition, which is exactly how you handle the object. If you handle an, uh, an object um, with a lot of pressure, you're going to cause your print to be a little bit more distorted than if you were to gently place your hand on an object. And those are all things that you take into consideration with a latent print. But when you are looking at the actual hand, none of those factors come into play because you're not touching anything. There's no deposition distortion. And it doesn't, um, the only thing that would affect something that's on your, the only reason that something on your hand would affect what I'm looking at is if it's obliterating detail. So what you're looking at in a photograph is more of ground truth. You're not questioning the detail that's there because there's not as much distortion. The distortion that you have to consider when you have a, a hand in a photograph is that that hand is probably not the focal point of the picture. The person taking the picture is likely holding an object or holding something in its hand, and that's the focal point of the picture. So if you're not focusing on the fingerprints, there's a good chance they're gonna be a little bit out of focus, and that's something you have to consider. You also have to consider um, lighting, whether a flash is present or just ambient light can sometimes cause a glare on the fingers in the photograph. And these are just little things that you have to acknowledge during your analysis and think about how that might affect what you're seeing, and then you're still going through the same process, which is looking for characteristics, looking for patterns, identifying the orientation of the print, the anatomical location. So it's still the same process, just with a little bit of a different mindset. Now, another challenge that you have, however, is that with our latent prints, uh, we put scales in them, right? And uh, most uh, pedophiles and criminals are not kind enough to bring a scale and hold that in the photo for you. So what do you do to overcome that? Correct. So when an officer develops a print out at a crime scene, we ask them to put a scale next to it so that when we receive uh, the photograph or the lift, we're able to calibrate that image so that we can print out a one-to-one -one photo and the print can be entered into our database at a one-to-one -one size. So with an image where you don't have a scale, you would have to take two different approaches. Either find something in that image that you know can be measured. For right. instance, I had a case where um, somebody was holding a gift card to Amazon. And if I had to calibrate that photo, I would have just bought an Amazon gift card, measured the size of the Amazon gift card, and calibrated the image from that. The other two cases I worked were um, cases, they were photos of a pedophile, and there was nothing to measure in the photograph because they were just body parts. And I had to I would have had to estimate right. the size of his finger if I had to run it through a database. I didn't have to for either of those cases. Uh, one was already calibrated by a different agency and the other one we had a suspect to compare to, but I would have had to estimate the size of the fingers that I was going to run through the database if that were the situation. And I know that uh, I've heard in another lecture one of the ways to do that is counting ridge detail, or counting uh, edges, yes, the ridge. Ridges. So, um, so what's the process in sort of, I mean, it's not just like, when you say estimate, you're not just guessing. I mean, there's, uh, there's certain things that you take into account to try to narrow down the size you're looking at. Right, if you had a male suspect's finger, he appeared to be a male adult in the photograph, you could measure a couple male adults in your office, see what the size of their first joint of their finger is, and make a rough estimate based on that. Um, 
If you were not to get a hit in your database based on that, you could increase the size or decrease the size a little bit and run a second set of prints and then increase it or decrease it a little bit more just to cover all your bases um, if you don't get a hit again. And the other uh, option would be to count ridges, which some of the databases have uh, a tool where you can actually size a print based on a ridge count. So that's built into the database, which is a useful. And you did some uh, research on your own as far as to see uh, increasing and decreasing how uh, accurate or how much it changes it. And uh, you found that you could actually, uh, there's a pretty good range there that you still can get your hits. Yeah, you have a little leeway, which was good to see. Um, I measured the actual size of my, the first joint of my left middle finger, and then I increased it by six millimeters and decreased it by six millimeters, and just increased and decreased by another millimeter here and there just to see where the results came back in the database. And it took, um, I think it was eight millimeters larger and four millimeters smaller before I fell off the top 50 candidate list. And of course, that's gonna change with every print, with every database, with every day, depending on whose um, fingerprints are running through that system. But it's good to know you have a little bit of leeway. Well, and that, like the first case that you were talking about, you had a known suspect, right? So I mean, you had someone to get major case prints from, but in the, in the case that uh, uh, you were practicing to see how far off it could be, uh, that's just running it through through APHIS, running through a database to check, right? Correct. So, and obviously we, we've talked about child cases and that's one thing, but uh, uh, there's so many other cases in which uh, we see uh, people putting on Facebook, people putting different things that, uh, especially you brought up, uh, you know, Amazon cars, fraud's a big thing, right? I mean, that uh, uh, sadly people uh, still fall for con artists and that's, they fall for it. Uh, because the con artists are good. They're good at convincing them of what they want. Uh, but uh, many times they'll tell you, take a picture uh, of the cards and, and send us these things. And, and uh, um, the one thing that uh, we've also noticed is that uh, people trying to avoid uh, being caught or using things such as uh, Bitcoin, uh, credit, uh, the gift cards, those type of things. And we're actually seeing this uh, in uh, sex trade and these type of things. So uh, I think that uh, this tool is very useful uh, to try to get out there. Um, what do you think some difficulties would be? Uh, meaning, um, obviously not every photo is gonna work. Uh, and so what are some, some challenges uh, in the photo, I guess, uh, that you would need as a, as a latent examiner to, um, to get a hit or to have a good print for identification? Well, we would have to have an area that has enough clarity with the characteristics that we're looking for. So if too much of the hand is covered by whatever the focal point of the photograph is, then we're not going to be able to work with that. If you don't have enough of the friction ridge skin, you may have a hand in the photograph, um, but you may not have the, the palmer surface, which has the friction ridge skin. Not to say that that's not useful. If you are able to make an arrest and you can photograph the back of the suspect's hand, that's not you know, something official that we do in terms of, you know, connecting freckles or something like right, that, but right. um, you can still show the picture of the suspect hand and the, with the, the perp's hand, right, right, and just show that they are similar and let a jury decide. Um, so really the biggest challenge is just getting enough friction-rich skin with enough characteristics that you can make the ID. Your hand's a, a pretty big surface and you don't need a, a lot of it. Um, 
to make it a comparison. You know, one thing that I thought of when uh, you were doing that, and um, so uh, I'm not sure if uh, you're aware of the database that uh, uh, NECNIC keeps, which is the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, and um, these are um, child pornography cases in which uh, things are uploaded and over, and they have examiners that basically are just looking at these photos, trying to identify certain things uh, in the image, whether it's a, a, a plug to know, is this a U.S., is this uh, international type of thing or whatever. And I would be curious uh, in all that database is there uh, if some of that type of evidence uh, actually exists uh, that's been overlooked at this point, that uh, we can certainly try to uh, make those connections, right? Yeah, that was the whole reason for this presentation is just you know, the first case I did, it broke my heart, and I don't, I, so much credit to the detectives who investigate this stuff. It, these are little kids, and that tugs at everybody's heartstrings. Um, but the whole reason behind this presentation was just because I don't think it dawns on people who are not latent print experts to look for fingerprints in the background of these photographs. You know, if I'm a, a computer crimes detective and I'm looking for a crime against a child, like the photograph that I put up in my presentation, I'm seeing you know, body parts and a little kid's hand, and that's what I'm noticing. I'm not necessarily noticing that the perp's hand is in it also, and there's enough friction ridge detail that I should go call a latent examiner. So really, I think getting the word out there and just putting a little bug in these guys, in the back of, you know, the minds of the investigators so that one day they come across the picture and they're like, oh, look at that hand. Let me go talk to my identification section and see if there's something that they can do to help us out here. No, and you're right. I mean, uh, uh, detectives, when they see those, and just like when you showed the photo in there, it's uh, the first thing that the detective thinks is, I've, I've met the elements of the crime, right? I mean, I, that's a crime. I'm solid. I mean, it's, no, it, uh, you don't think of the fingerprint that's in there. Also, the uh, link to it, um, uh, I can tell you on occasion, we probably, in cases I've worked, have passed up photos like that. Um, and we're still searching the IP address, and we're still searching other things to try to track this person down when there possibly could have been a, a finger in there that we could have uh, done. And, and I appreciate you bringing this uh, forward to the Texas. Matter of fact, as I told you, there's uh, another conference going on uh, this week that's in Dallas. It's the Crimes Against Children Conference where there's uh, professionals in their field, uh, about three or 4,000 that investigate these crimes around the world. and. Uh, we're hoping to share this information with them and get this in the right uh, hands so that uh, they can take that back and uh, share with their fingerprint examiners. And that's uh, just like this conference. That's what it's all about is bringing those disciplines together uh, so that we can share this information. And uh, sometimes it's new technology and sometimes it's old technology that's being used in a different way. So. Somebody actually came up to me after I spoke today and he did exactly what I did with the Polaroid from 1980, I think he said it was, which to me was just fascinating. I mean, the camera technology back then was garbage compared to what we have now, but I loved that even back then they were noticing things like this. I mean, we're just another possible open door. Maybe we'll help, maybe we won't, but why not have as many people trying to find an investigative lead as you can? No, and I appreciate you bringing it forward and uh, making us aware of that, and we're certainly going to share that information, and I appreciate you joining us to share it with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So, in speaking with uh, Karen in reference to her print, so she's getting a print off of um, 
a photo of a hand because of the increased technology with cell phones, right? They're become more clear, mm -hmm. and obviously that's sort of what you need for identifying fingerprints is something that's sharp enough that you can get detail in there. Okay, so we've sort of been spreading this message that she had with other law enforcement, with detectives, especially child crimes, that we go through all of these ICAC and we go through all these images and stuff. And if there's the possibility that we see something that could be an identifiable print to get that into the lab. Now, normally, mm -hmm. you know, fingerprint experts are using uh, powders and different chemicals and things to enhance, and this is just straight off of a photo. But one thing that it, it brings to question, you know, most agencies throughout the U.S. are smaller agencies. They're not large agencies. They're not 500-man agencies, but they're about a 50- to 100-man agency as a typical agency that's out there. Now, just about every right. agency I know has, like, you know, fingerprint powder, right? Everybody gets a little kit mm -hmm. when they get out of the academy, and they get some basic training. But I'm just wondering some advice for these agencies that would like to step up their – their fingerprint game, right? They, that they can process a little bit more. I mean, how many patrol officers say, I, I couldn't take prints because of this surface, because of that surface, you know, and how many things that are missing because of that. So if you can give me some ideas of just some basic, sort of like the next level that a department could go to. Yeah, definitely. So I know a lot of the forensic companies that supply um, to agencies they offer various ranges of fingerprint kits. So you can get your basic one that you had mentioned that would probably just have basic black powder um, and a fingerprint brush. Um, and that's really about it. Uh, maybe some index cards. Um, to expand on that, you can also, there's two different types of basic fingerprint powder. You can do the regular kind of really fine volcanic ash powder, which is great for processing vehicles, um, covering large areas like windows and things like that. Um, certainly your metallic objects are, are great for that, um, you know, to use that kind of regular powder. There's also magnetic powder that you can use, obviously, on non-metallic objects, such as beer bottles, um, window glass you can use on that if you've got the smaller pieces it's going to be a more fine or a smaller detail um, because it produces a smaller fingerprint bristle if you will um, when you use a magnetic wand and you create kind of what is like a paintbrush with the magnetic particles um, and use that to apply on the the non-metallic surfaces so you certainly wouldn't want to use it on tools such as you know, burglary tools, crowbars, um, any kind of tire irons or anything like that because anything that is metallic is going to attract those magnetic particles. So it's really not going to benefit at all. Um, there are kits that, that contain uh, different colors of fingerprint powders. So there's certainly white, um, black, gray, fluorescent, every kind of fluorescent color you can think of. Now, you, um, you know, you've talked before about not using the fluorescent. You're not a fan of, of using fluorescent powders. I'm not, and just because I think I was raised old school. So when I first became a crime scene investigator and was learning about fingerprint processing, and, um, and not only that, but actually going into the fingerprint comparison and identification process, at that point, we as an agency were still on 35-millimeter film. Um, so 
when you would take a, you know, lift a fingerprint or develop a fingerprint with fluorescent powder, you have to put that on some kind of contrasting background. So, you know, with us before Photoshop, before technology um, was on the scene, we would have to print out photo paper that was black so that we would have a light colored fluorescent orange or fluorescent yellow fingerprint that developed and put it on a black background or a dark background. So then in order to be able to put it into APHIS or another type of fingerprint search system, you then had to reverse the colors, which meant that we then had to take a picture and be able to flip. So instead of the ridges of the fingerprint being a light color of that fluorescent powder on a dark background, we had to be able to flip that and have dark ridges on a white background or a light background. So that created a lot of more, a lot more steps that had to be done in the um, in that process in order to get that. So to avoid that, we just stayed with gray and black as as a good contrast because even on say a black vehicle, if you've got a mixture of of gray and even with a little bit of black powder in there, you can still get enough contrast and using oblique lighting or available lighting that you have, you can still see where there's ridge detail um, and certainly where there's powder that's adhered to um, to that matrix, whether it be sweat um, or some other kind of um, substance that is what the fingerprint was left in. So we just, um, for ease, until technology caught up, we have just stayed with the gray and the black powders and basic white index cards. Uh, there are kits that have pre-designed fingerprint cards um, that will give you a nice box to draw. And, and I'm a big, big fan of drawing a picture um, because the officer that is developing and lifting the fingerprint has the object right in front of them. But when it goes to being submitted to the lab and going to the um, examiner or the technician who's gonna handle that fingerprint, Sometimes things get lost in translation of knowing, okay, which way it was up, which way, you know, what or, surface or the, was Or the this, description that is that it's on the car door, right? It's, it's right, on, right. you know, <laughs> they, they may put passenger car door, but it's on the door somewhere, right? Right, right absolutely. Sometimes we're not able to get any description. <laughs> so we then have to track down the officer and, and get a little bit more information. Um, and that information becomes vital, not only if the case goes to trial, and being able to describe, especially for that initial officer who submitted it, you know, I have a hard enough time remembering what I did last week on a case that, you know, I've moved on to other cases, certainly have a challenge of remembering a year and a half to two years down the line if it's then going to trial, if I didn't make notes. So we become very good note takers. Um, but, you know, it, it helps for it helps the examiner be able to orient the print and hopefully narrow down their search instead of having to go into the computer system and searching all 10 fingers. Um, if we are fortunate enough to have simultaneous impressions or, you know, have some clues in that print, whether it's a palm print or a fingerprint, we might be able to narrow it down if it's a palm print to the left palm versus the right palm, or we might be able to, you know, have a 
kind of an educated guess on maybe an index finger versus searching all 10 fingers. So the, the more specific we can get or the more information we can get, it certainly helps the search parameters. Well, um, but going back, yeah, go well, ahead. Well, I, I gather that also, I mean, the location is going to be sort of probative, too, as to, you know, if this is on the outside of a car door, uh, then, yeah, should they have been there or not? But, I mean, being on the outside, depending on the type of crime we're dealing with, it may not be, you know, someone passing by in a parking lot, someone that's in the apartment complex. You know, at, if it's not inside, you know, it may mm -hmm. not be as of great value as uh, where other ones are. Absolutely. One of my favorite examples to give when I'm teaching to groups is imagine that you've gotten a, you've been able to develop um, a fingerprint or a palm print on a beer bottle. You know, it, say it's a, a thumbprint. So there's a huge difference as to whether it is orientated in the normal position of where somebody would be picking up that beer bottle and drinking from it um, to where maybe it's more angled towards the top of the bottle versus if somebody had picked it up um, by the neck of the bottle and used it as a weapon. So where the orientation might be more down towards the base of the bottle. So that orientation can, you know, can be huge um, for any piece of evidence. So the more detailed, the better. There are kits available that have those pre-made latent cards um, that will have the information that um, that is helpful. So not only the object, where it was lifted, um, you know, what the offense is, the case number, the officer's name, the date and the time. Um, and it kind of prompts the officer if they're, you know, if this is something that they don't usually do, you know, on a regular basis, that they that it hasn't become second nature, kind of helps them um, figure out what information needs to go on an index card. So now a lot of that stuff's in the basic kit, as you said. I mean, we get the sure. black powder, and, and sometimes we'll even get mm -hmm. the magnetic. So so what's the next step? What's the ne Like if someone's starting to look at their budget, you know, and depending on how much money they can spend and take it to the next level, mm -hmm. where would be the next place you could see a smaller department going? So another easy thing to, to get their hands on would be um, aerosol ninhydrin. So ninhydrin is a chemical that reacts with the amino acids, which is located in sweat. It is used for porous items, so forged checks, threatening letters, um, you know, any kind of paper or cardboard. Um, I've developed, I had an aggravated robbery many years ago um, that was a home invasion, and the suspects pretended to be delivery, delivery men and forced their way into the home while they were carrying a cardboard box. And I was able to develop latent prints on the cardboard box, as well as the packaging tape, which ultimately led to one of the suspects being identified and convicted. Um, so there's certainly many tools available, uh, but ninhydrin is a very, very easy thing. Um, in our lab, we use it in a vent hood that has, you know, the recycled air, or it, it recycles the chemical through um, so that you're not breathing the fumes. But it could also be done outside um, where there's good ventilation. You don't have to worry about being in an enclosed environment. Um, here in Texas, we have the added benefit of our humidity is generally pretty it's already, high. It's already built in. 11 months right. out of the year. <laughs> yeah. 
so that is one of the things that helps accelerate the um, the development of any fingerprints on with with nitrogen or latent prints with nitrogen. Uh, so in areas where the humidity is really low, they have to um, they have to introduce humidity into the environment. Some people have developed them with the steam of an iron, like a clothes iron. Um, like I said, in Texas, we don't have that problem, right, <laughs> at no. least in our area. Um, so I, one of the very few benefits of the humid weather that we have. Um, and, you know, there, there are times where, depending on the environment, depending on the climate, it might take several days for, de- for it to develop um, any latents that might be there. Um, but for us, we generally start seeing some development within a few hours. Um, so, you know, it's just knowing your environment that you're in, but that's something that is easily obtained. You don't have to mix chemicals because the companies now offer them pre-mixed in an aerosol can. When it's gone, you just throw it away. Um, you don't have to worry about any kind of um, mixing of chemicals or preparing of anything. And then worrying about the shelf life with that. Um, so that would be something small agencies could invest in for their patrol officers or even, you know, if they've only got a, a couple of technicians that are doing this work. Um, so that's certainly one thing. Um, and I would gather that uh, another option, I know many people have done this, especially smaller age stuff, is to have, you know, you can certainly buy the, the forensic tank, right? But most people can go get yeah. a uh, fish tank and things like that <laughs> yeah. to UCA. So uh, obviously that's sort of, I guess, in my opinion, sort of the, uh, another next step in your fingerprinting, right? Absolutely. Um, so CA, being the cyanoacrylate, the uh, superglue, is definitely a must, um, whether it is with a forensic tank that's designed to control the humidity level and recycle those fumes as well versus one that is homemade. Uh, we actually still have a fish tank that we utilize on a daily basis. Um, it was probably made somewhere between 25 and 30 years ago, and it still functions perfectly fine. It's, it's still <laughs> so, a box with glass, um, right? Yeah, it's a box with glass, and I'm sure the friends and companies are not happy to hear that. However, <laughs> there are benefits to getting one that is forensically designed, if that fits into the budget. Um, so yes, that is, that is a must. So the idea with any kind of superglue fuming is when the superglue is heated up, the fumes dissipate within that chamber. And any kind of non-porous object, again, beer bottle, screwdriver, cell phone, um, you know, any kind of, of surface that is a non-porous surface uh, can be superglued. And what that does is it stabilizes the latent prints that may be on that object. Um, the benefit to stabilizing it with superglue is it allows that examiner to be able to process it in multiple ways and multiple times. Um, take that beer bottle again. If I had a beer bottle with latent prints on it and I did not superglue fume it, um, I might be able to dust it with powder, lift off the latents, maybe dust it again. If I'm really, really lucky and it had a lot of residue on it, I might be able to dust it and lift it a third time. But generally, it's one to two lifts. If I have super glue fumed it and stabilized that fingerprint, then I can I can dust it with powder. I can lift it. I can dust it again. I can lift it. I can apply chemicals, dye stain, 
I'll be able to photograph it. So it it allows gives more, you more versatility options. for the right. examiner. Yes, absolutely. More ways to capture um, the best detail possible. So, um, and then another favorite of mine is sticky side powder. I absolutely love sticky side powder. It is fantastic when dealing with duct tape. Um, it will develop latents on the non-adhesive side as well as the adhesive side. Um, and I use it on packaging tape. It's it's more challenging. Um, certainly, it's not a good choice for very porous tapes like masking tape or painter's tape. Um, but you know, any type of home invasion that we typically will get, um, we'll usually utilize. Um, duct tape. And so we, we come across that more, I would say, than other types of tape. So that is very easy to mix up and very easy to use. You just need a little bit of running water in order to rinse the tape once the, the uh, sticky side powder is applied to it. And then just allow the tape to air dry and then you would follow up with photographing um, any latents that were developed on it. I know that many yeah. drug dealers use it to package uh their drugs and such for your large yep. drug cases. I only bring that up because I know you spent how many days processing that case? Oh yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. A week or so. Yes. So you're you're well versed <laughs> in using sticky yes. side powder. <laughs> Absolutely, and like I said, it's it's one of my favorites. Um, you know, mostly because even a beginner examiner, beginner technician can use it and have good results. You know, if if there's any prints there, you know, and, and you take the time and the care to to apply the chemical and, you know, you can reapply it if, if you don't get any luck the first time. Sometimes that does help, um, but it, it's either there or it's not there. Right. Um, so it's certainly, you know, not something that you have to go away to a week-long um, formal training school in order to learn how to do. Um, and along the lines with the duct tape, um, one of the little tips that, that we've always try to pass on to new officers um, is to go to the dollar store and get a box of wax paper. If you come across a home invasion or an ag assault where a victim was taped up, and if you take that wad of tape or whatever condition it's in and throw it in a brown evidence bag, it's just going to stick to the brown bag and you're going to get that in the lab and all of the sticky side, which would be great for fingerprints, is now covered with brown paper. Um, and so if you've ever tried to take tape off of gift wrap right, at Christmas right. time or at birthday, it just does nothing but destroy the paper and it doesn't help the adhesive side. It's the same thing that would happen. And so if you get some wax paper and you wrap that up, roll, you know, roll the, the bundle up or wrap the bundle up, um, on the in the wax paper it will stick to the wax paper but it will peel off of the wax paper and allow you to be able to process it so something that'll cost you a dollar maybe two dollars at the most at the store is a very easy addition to throw in a patrol car and have accessible so now i know one uh, problem that many officers see when they're trying to process cars and and different mm -hmm. rough type of uh, services and how many reports we've gotten back unsuitable for prints, unsuitable for prints, that type of thing. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and after you get more deep into it, certainly you're an expert in it. Uh, there's very few surfaces that you can't 
do something to get prints off of. Is there something sort of at the patrol level or one step up to on those textured or different type of surfaces like that? Um, well, there's a couple of different techniques and different things that, that you can utilize. Um, I became a fan of the um, hinge tape lifts. Instead of using a roll of fingerprint tape, there's pads that are, are um, pre-made that have about 50 or 100 sheets of tape um, that are part of this pad. Um, I think they're great, especially for processing vehicles outside, especially if it's on a windy day. It never fails. Murphy's Law, you're going to develop this beautiful palm print or fingerprint, and you go to put your tape on it. The wind is going to catch it, and the tape is going to fold back over on itself, or you know, it's going to create a crease when you're trying to lift that print off. Uh, these tape lifts, I think, are wonderful because they have a tab at the top where you can easily hold onto it without depositing your own fingerprints on the tape, which is always ideal. Right. right. Um, yeah. And it'll allow you to smooth that out over the surface and be able to lift it partially off of the vehicle but still be anchored onto that vehicle or whatever surface you're using um, to process and be able to slide your index card under that and then smooth the tape right over the index card without it ever um, coming detached from, from your surface. So those are fantastic. Um, certainly they probably cost more than a roll of tape, but in the grand scheme of things, I think it's, that's a very good investment, especially for the patrolman who's going to be processing out in the field and dealing with elements. Um, Another, obviously, certainly a, a camera. I mean, that's, yeah, that's, that's one that's of That's a them. must for all of them, right? <laughs> that's, yes, that's probably the most immediate. It looked um, amazing. I drew it for you right yes. here. <laughs> that's right. I drew it on a card. Um, no, certainly a camera. And, you know, it doesn't have to be the, you know, the most expensive DSLR camera. If, the, if that budget isn't there, there are decent point-and-shoot cameras that have macro settings. You know, the patrol cameras that we issue are certainly not top of the line, but they right. do the job. Um, and there is a macro setting. And so we teach our officers that, you know, you might have to, to step back. You're not going to be able to put the camera lens, you know, two inches away from your fingerprint because this camera is not designed to do that. But it will zoom in to, to capture a good detailed picture. Um, in a scale, scale if necessary. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, Go back know, to that requiring more work of you. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, especially if it's something that's going to go into an APHIS system. You know, there's got to be the proper proportion in order for the computer to, you know, to be able to, um, to read the print or see the print properly, I guess is a better term. Um, but yeah, a scale is necessary. And, you know, it, could be the dollar store roller if that's that's all you can do you know there's six inch scales that are very cheap to yeah, get we, we'd rather you not use a, a pin uh, a pin is not a scale a pencil is not a scale <laughs> right. uh, anything with well, actual <laughs> markings on it would be awesome right uh, it's funny you say that because several years ago i had a brand new detective who had developed a fingerprint or a palm print i think it was and took beautiful pictures and he didn't have a roller, didn't have a scale available. Um, you know, and we tell them if you've got to use your business card 
or a quarter, something like that. Don't use a paper clip because when I look at the picture, I'm not going to be able to tell if it's a standard paper clip or a jumbo paper clip. Right. But he used his pen. And so I was like, wow, this is a beautiful photograph, um, but it's a pen. Right. So I, I got a hold of him. I said, hey, I got your fingerprint pictures. They're phenomenal. Do you by chance have that pen still? <laughs> and yep, I sure do. I said, great. I need you to come up to the crime lab so I can photograph that with a scale. Right. So that's what I did. I photographed that. I scaled the, the pen so I got the proper measurements. And then I used that to scale the fingerprint and the palm print to be able to, um, to have it at one-to-one. Um, so there's, there's ways it might be a little bit extra step in there if somebody uses a pen. Um, but you know, things that are standard size, business cards, quarter, (laughs) things like that. If you can't get a ruler, obviously a ruler is, is certainly, um, the ideal situation. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, and you bring up a great point because I know that we've been told if you go to any forensic photography and stuff, you're told over and over, shooting raw, shooting raw, shooting TIFF, shooting anything mm-hmm. but a lossly compression such as JPEG. However, right. you know if you go to the standards, you know that uh, so the IAI, mm-hmm. uh, you know, has different divisions that sort of cover all these things and and different standards, and one of those is uh, the Imaging Technology Scientific Working Group. And one of the things that they cover in there is they say, you know, it's a myth that you have to shoot in RAW or in TIFF for it to be an identifiable print. And basically right. their, their rule of, of what they say is that, no, you can, it's, pre, it's preferred, sort of like we talked about the ruler, right? It's preferred that it's shot in RAW or it's shot in TIFF. However, Absolutely. if it's shot in JPEG and an examiner is able to see enough detail to make an identification, then it's solid. Mm-hmm. It's you know it all comes Absolutely. down to the examiner and what uh, mm-hmm. you know they're able to identify in the print. Absolutely, and and the ability to take pictures with the camera as well. You know, you might have a fantastic print, a fantastic camera, but if you're not taking your time and properly framing that fingerprint in the camera. Um, to you know, to get a 90 degree or perpendicular picture or a clear one at that, you know, have it in focus, then it's really not going to do that much good. Right. <laughs> so no, it's not. you know, practicing is is definitely key there too. So just you know, in wrapping up some things as far as tips, we've talked about uh, regular powder, magnetic powder, uh, then taking a step <laughs> up to anhydrin and. Go get a fish tank if you can't afford one of the more expensive <laughs> fuming tanks to do some CA. And mm-hmm. then on to Sticky Side. And what else did I miss? Was there one in there? The... Um, I think that pretty much covered it. The Ninhydrin, Sticky Side, um, different different colors um, if, you, if you want to. If you have access to Photoshop, um, then it's certainly a lot easier now with technology technology than it was years ago under the 35 millimeter film. Right. Um, but yes, technology has certainly made it a lot easier. So if you want to play with forensic or um, fluorescent powders, you certainly can do that. Just know that the nature of them, you're going to have a more limited um, use for them, I guess, versus the standard black and gray powders. They also make powders in white. Um, so 
those are great for black trash bags. You know, sometimes with narcotics cases, we get um, black trash bags. Uh, so white powders and fluorescence powders do great on those. So it just kind of depends on what type of evidence that you would typically encounter um, in your jurisdiction and the type of offenses that you're going to be getting evidence from. And right, Most of the powders you know, and the colors available. seem to be based mm -hmm. on, on what the background is, right? I mean, we're trying to develop contrast, mm -hmm. so you know, right. the end result that the examiner can, can see it better. Absolutely. All right, well, I think that uh, will wrap us up for a day. We appreciate you giving some advice on some fingerprints. Uh, so thank Absolutely. you very much. You're welcome. I'm happy to help.